begin uh, our Advent lessons looking at hope. But because of the ice last week and because next week falls on um, New Year's Eve day, uh, we're a little short of Sundays to talk about hope and joy and peace and love. So what I'm going to do is spend a few weeks at the beginning of January talking about things that we would have talked about during Advent. Uh, today, I want to just follow up a little bit on some things about hope and then today's uh, issue of joy, and then I want to end with a practical way that we can kind of do what the tradition calls us to do, to stir ourselves to hope. And it's a practical thing about emotion management, and so that's what we're going to do today. So I mentioned two weeks ago that the accumulated wisdom of our tradition, uh, our fear, in the, the, that accumulated wisdom, our spiritual forebears have created a calendar. And that calendar encourages us to come back to, to revisit important themes on a recurring, on a regular basis. And among them are what's on the banner that the, the, the Vicky did for us, hope and joy and peace and love, to return back to those because they're essential themes for a life that is well-lived. They're essential themes for walking the spiritual journey. They remind us, we said last time, that no setback can last forever. No lie can live forever. Truth once crushed will rise again. They remind us, resonating through generation after generation, that there are truer truths compassion and kindness and justice and courage, and that these truths will prevail in the end. Now, they are truths from which we are easily distracted. They are truths that we can easily lose sight of. But the truth of our tradition makes the bold proclamation that God life prevails in the end. The truer truths prevail in the end. In other words, we said last time, love is truer than hatred, and hope is truer than despair. Weeping, our prophets told us, lasts for the night, but joy comes in the morning. So our calendar invites us back at this time of the year to these essential truths, truths that are easy to miss in 2017. Last time I spoke about the national survey that says that 60% of Americans think that this is the darkest time in memorable history. Now, we all understand why the survey says that. It's been a hard several years, hard for families, for neighborhoods, for workplaces, hard for churches. But everywhere we gather as Americans, it's been difficult to navigate these last couple years. And when you're in the throes of difficult times like this, it's easy to hear the language of Advent. It's easy to hear the words of these ancient spiritual themes and under the influence of the prevailing winds of discouragement in our society to simply respond, bah. It's easy to dismiss the ancient wisdom that tells us every valley will be exalted, every mountain will be made low, the rough places will be made smooth, and the crooked places will be made straight. The day of darkness will pass, our texts tell us. The glory of God, the justice of God, the righteousness of God shall be revealed. All flesh shall see it together. If you hear Messiah this holiday season, you will hear those words sung beautifully. 
words that were written a long time ago, promises spoken to times that were darker even than our own, promises that came to pass for them and promises that will come to pass for us. But it's so easy when we hear those words at times like this to be moved by the spirit of the day. Bah. But hope, we said last time, is not foolish. When we are called by our ancient wisdom to stir up from within that hope, it is not foolish. When our calendar calls us to sing in the darkness, to light fires in the time of our fear, to sing and to tell stories of hope one to another, our calendar and the wisdom from which it draws is not foolish because these are truer truths. To be the people that we need to be in moments like this one, to be able to make right what has gone wrong, to be the people that we need to be in moments like this, to be able to heal what has been wounded, to be able to restore what has been broken, we need to be people who do access these essential spiritual truths. We need to be people who can access the truth of hope, but also experience hope. We need to be people who can access the truth of joy and experience joy. That's why our calendar calls us to this darkness singing. That's why our calendar calls us to songs of hope and joy, to gather and to feast and to tell stories and to wear special clothes and to eat special foods. We do it to stir ourselves and to stir one another to hope and to joy. Now, what I didn't get to last time was what it is that our tradition teaches us to sing in the darkness. Now, here is a theological term you do not need to know. It's kind of an inside baseball term. It's important for the workings on which our tradition rests, but nobody needs to know it. it the term is eschatological promise. <laughs> you don't need to know this word. But like inside baseball, you don't have to understand the term in order to enjoy a game. You don't have to understand that term to thrive on the spiritual journey. But I want to talk about it because it does provide the underpinnings for why we do what we do and how we're talking today. That word, eschatological, it has to do with ultimacy. It has to do with destiny. The word eschatos, the Greek word eschatos itself, means the last or the farthest. So what it's saying, thank you very much, Grampy. You are such a good guy. <laughs> so what that term, eschatological promise, is saying to us is that when we walk this thing to its conclusion, when we go the farthest, there's a promise awaiting us there. Again and again our tradition has affirmed when this journey that we all take, when this human experience we're all in together, when it goes the distance, there always comes a day. The ancients called this day the day of the Lord. We don't use that language anymore. Jesus called it kingdom come or when the kingdom of God has come. There comes a day when God-light overcomes darkness. When we walk this path long enough, we start to see that 
There comes a day when God life overcomes death, when goodness overcomes evil, when love overcomes hatred, when justice overcomes injustice. Now before a shepherd boy living somewhere uh, near Israel threw a rock into a cave about 50 or 60 years ago and discovered the Dead Sea Scrolls, we thought that the day of the Lord came at the end of time. Before we discovered the Dead Sea Scrolls, we thought that the day of the Lord meant that God would stop history, stop time, and then, then light and life and goodness and love and justice would overcome. But what the Dead Sea Scrolls did was give us a kind of Rosetta Stone for, uh, it's an interpretive lens to help us better translate all of those scriptures that we thought were about the end of time. Turns out that they were not. They were about the end of this particular season, this particular age, this particular injustice. They were, the day of the Lord comes when this season of oppression comes to an end. The day of the Lord comes when this season of lovelessness, this season of darkness comes to an end. Turns out that the day of the Lord is a recurring occurrence. It happens through history, not after history. The oppression of Babylon, some of the earliest writings said, will be overcome. Justice and freedom will prevail. And sure enough, it was, and they did. The day of the Lord will come and free us from Rome's brutality. And sure enough, it did. And on and on through history, the promise that we sing one to another in the darkness of winter's shortest days, in the darkness of times that we're going through as a nation right now, the song that we sing is a song of promise rooted in the observance of history that the day of the Lord has come and has come and has come and will come again. It recurs again and again. Darkness comes, but light comes again. Hatred rules for a while, but then love overcomes. Lies are told for a while, but then truth prevails. Exclusion of the other is tolerated for a while, but then it wanes and a bigger version of we begins to wax, begins to emerge. We lose our way, but then we find it again. We get frightened into behaving badly, and then we find our way again. The day of the Lord always returns, and it returns like a spiral that gets a little bit closer to a reflection of the divine life after every turn. We begin to move forward to a deeper understanding of the way of God. Now we looked at some historical uh, evidence for the phenomenon that I just mentioned, that spiral thing, because if you're sitting there you might be thinking, no it doesn't, it doesn't go that way, but there is, if you missed last time, go ahead and have a listen online. And it turns out, when we look back from a historical perspective, that when things get really painful, when things get really bad, Oftentimes, that is the very mechanism by which the day of the Lord is brought into being. In other words, pain is often a necessary precondition for change. 
pain is often a necessary precondition for God light to begin shining in the darkness, for God life to resurrect us from our current experience of death. You've heard the expression that the darkest hour is just before the dawn. It's an old proverb rooted in the observation of this recurring human experience. When things seem to be excruciatingly painful, maybe at their worst, that's often the time when things begin improving. Because when it is that painful, the precondition of pain is doing what pain does. And what pain does is ready us. What pain does is prepare us. What pain does is get us in the place where we are ready to make the changes that will be required for life and for love and for truth and for goodness to prevail. That's how it works. And that's how it's working now. We're just living in the despair part. We're living in the precondition part. We're living in the, oh, this is painful part. And so our tradition says every year, return to singing in the darkness. The wisdom tell us this is the time when it is dark to be singing our songs and to be lighting our fires and to be lighting our candles and to be loving and hugging and kissing one another and to stir one another to hope because there is this thing, eschatological promise, that says that God life prevails every time, every time so far. Now this might be the first time in history that it won't, but odds are goodness will prevail this time too. Now, if you are watching our society seem to be unraveling at the seams, you could tell yourself the story of these events that that is exactly what is happening that the social fabric is being torn never to recover. Or you could tell yourself a story about the events that are going on these days like this. It looks like the heat is being turned up. The heat that's necessary to thaw out things that have long been frozen in place. Things that must be thawed in order for us to move into a new place. Here's a way to see the painful fire that we are going through together as a society. It's a thawing of the frozen divisions between us so that the world can be different for our children and for our grandchildren. Now for a long, long time, one example, the way that gay people and straight people have related to one another has been frozen in place, locked in place. But the heat is on thawing out those entrenched places so that they can move and so we can relate differently. The same is true of black people and white people, brown people and white people, people of all colors. The way that we relate, or more pointedly, the way that we don't relate, has been frozen in place for a long, long time. Long before you and I were born onto this earth, our relationships were set for us and locked in place. But the heat's on, and the heat is thawing out those entrenched roles that society shoehorns us into playing. The heat is on, thawing things out to free up spaces that we can occupy that we could not once occupy. Same is true of women and men. 
We've been frozen in place for a long time. A power dynamic, locked in place, frozen the way it always was. And that doesn't just reference sexual aggression, but it's mistreatment of many kinds. It's been tolerable for a long, long time for women to be treated differently than men. But the heat is on, and it's thawing out those power differentials. The heat is on, it's thawing out those accepted norms of mistreatment. The heat is on, freeing up safety and security and respect and justice. A smaller version of we has been locked in place for a really long time. Us and them has been locked in place, frozen in place for a long, long time. But the heat is on. And those locked-in spaces are being thawed so we can move them around and create a bigger version of we. That's the way history goes. The day of the Lord comes. It always does. Now the problem is, to get from here to there, yeah, pain's part of the process. Backlash is part of the process. Wounded, and, wounded hearts and then the actions that come from wounded hearts. That's part of the process. When things get thawed, the heat does come on, and the heat can be painful. But it is part of the promise. The eschatological promise is sure. The day of the Lord does come. But often pain is the necessary precondition. Listen to how Jesus talked about this process. What will it be like to bring about a world organized around God life God love, how might we imagine it? Well, here's a way. Imagine God life like a pine nut. When a pine cone breaks open and a nut settles into the ground, it's a pretty inconsequential event. But don't rush to judgment. When that happens, it's not long before a mighty pine tree dominates the landscape, becoming home for birds and squirrels. It's not long after that that more cones give birth to a whole thicket. And not long after that, a forest, an ecosystem is birth, home to bears and eagles and deer and wolves. No small thing, the life resident in a simple pine nut. So that's a good way to imagine how our world becomes organized around God life. So, Jesus said, come join me. Be the pine nut. Be the planter of pine nuts. Be the pine nut. Be the agency by which the world is changed. But to do that, you have to access the divine life that we all carry within us because we are all carriers of the indwelling Spirit of God. And to do that, to access that divine life, we must access these essential themes that we return to each Advent. To be that kind of agency in the world. We must be people of hope and people of joy and people of peace and people of love. Well, that would mean that we would need to walk into the world bringing our best selves. Every day, you and I, we go out and we create a little bit of the world. Every day, you and I, we go out and we shape some small corner of the earth. And we can do that either 
accessing the hope of the eschatological promise. We can do that accessing these ancient truths of hope and joy. Or we can go into our world-shaping days, our earth-forming days, carried by the prevailing winds of the day. We can walk into our role as shapers of the earth, carrying the despair that the poll registered, or carrying the fear that drives so many of the hateful actions that we see each day. We can be frightened by the divisions that we cannot seem to see beyond so that we can engage the other. Well, Jesus' call is to bring our best selves to the endeavor of repairing the earth. Jesus' call is to be the pine nut, small, but not small at all. And to do that, we must access hope. We must access that interior joy. And we must encourage one another in the darkness. And also to encourage one another to also access this hope, this joy. So that's what Advent is about on a recurring basis to come back and return to these great themes so that we can walk out into the world that we shape each day and be carriers of divine life and bring healing and light so that the pine nut becomes the pine and becomes the thicket and becomes the forest. So I want to end with a practical strategy, a practical way that we can do this. When things look as dark as they do these days, when the darkness seems so dark and hope is so difficult to see and joy is so difficult to access, how do we maintain our hope in the darkness? How do we maintain our joy in the darkness? How do we stir that thing within ourselves so that we have something to offer one to another to encourage one another to elevate our vision? How do we do it? Well, here's a tip, and it has to do with emotion management. There are many emotions, we call them afflictive emotions, that are hope killers. There are emotions that are uh, joy killers, despair, anger, resentment, bitterness, many of them. Now, the reason that we have so focused on the practice of self-awareness and self-disclosure. You hear us talk about it uh, by talking about doing a worksheet. The reason that we do that practice, the reason that we study the Enneagram, the reason that we meditate, the reason that we do all of these things that we do is so that we can actually see when a hope-killing or a joy-killing emotion arises because most people, usually, we don't. We don't see those things when they happen. Usually we don't stand outside of the emotional experience. Usually that emotion just boils over. And when it does, it becomes the consuming nature of our whole experience. Usually no observer self stands outside of emotion. Usually no observer self sees the emotion come and eventually sees it go. No, what usually happens is that we are consumed by anger or consumed by despair or by bitterness or by resentment or discontent. It's not in our own experience, let those emotions come up in us. They define us. They make our days. 
Well, the contemplative wing understood that that isn't really true. What is really true is that emotions arise in us, but that's all. They just arise in us. They do not define us, nor do they point us to the north star of the one and true truth about reality. Emotions simply arise in us. And so our contemplative tradition has taught us, be aware of the process when it happens. Be aware when hope-killing and joy-killing emotions arise. Notice them and help one another notice them. Don't allow ourselves or one another to become totally absorbed in these killing emotion experiences. Help one another see them when they're happening and observe them when they happen. Now, here's how not to do that, the tradition tells us. Don't try and control them. Don't try and stuff them down. Because often when we fear that those strong, volatile, negative emotions will destroy us or the people around us, we try to suppress them or get rid of them or run from them, stuff them down somehow. But trying to control our hope-killing, our joy-killing emotions is not really how it works. At best, we can suppress them for a while, but usually we just strengthen them. Our contemplative tradition says that our job is simply to observe these hope-killing, joy-killing emotions, to see them. What that means for feelings, feelings are feelings because we feel them. That's one of those things you should write down. <laughs> feelings are feelings because we feel them. <laughs> and so what it means to observe them is just to notice the physiological sensations that happen in our bodies when an emotion arises. Each emotion comes with its own set of physiological sensations. What our brains tend to do is to take these experiences and try and stitch together a story of meaning to make meaning out of them. So we put a label on the physical sensation. We tell our stories about these bodily sensations. And then when the labels get cemented in our minds and a story gets told, that story actually has more power than the actual experience of having the emotion had in the first place. I am angry, defining myself. I am depressed, defining myself. We don't even usually go that far. What we usually do is not even bother labeling them. They just consume us and we say things like, it's bad and it's never going to get any better. People don't change, so this won't change. I can't do anything about this. Those people are bad, or they are stupid, or they are greedy, or they are blind. And since I can't do anything about it, I'm just going to stew over here, and I'm going to rehearse in my mind their badness, their greed, their stupidity, their blindness. And the thing is, those stories are static while the emotions are not. Those stories remain even though the emotion does not. The actual experience of emotion then sensations that trigger our stories are very temporary. Long after the emotion itself has passed, the story remains. Now we fixed the heat, and we turned it on. <laughs> and I'm getting really hot. Are you overly hot? Is it true for you? Because sometimes when I'm standing up here, I have a different experience. You're going to go turn it down, Jim? Thank you, my friend. Okay, good. So... The story remains fixed long after the emotion itself has subsided. And so, these sensations of ours, these physiological responses, these feelings that we feel, they're like the weather. They come, they go. They're like day and they're like night. They come and they go. They're here and then they're gone. 
they're this way, and then maybe they like the clouds, they morph into something different. But when we put a label on those sensations, and when we put a story in our mind about those sensations, long after they are gone, we're still stuck with the story. The story remains, the story gets fixed, the story digs in, it becomes immovable, and it begins to control our lives. It begins to control our experiences and our actions and our reactions to the people around us and the choices we make about our lives. And that'll kill hope. The thing itself has long dissipated, but the story still has power over us. The story we made up to put a label on these sensations that go on in our bodies, these, these internal sensations, that story lingers. But again, that's what our contemplatives, that's what our mystical tradition saw happening. And they taught us a way beyond getting locked into those hope-killing, joy-killing experiences. Now, I think about them and how they ever found their way to this kind of an insight, and I think they must have been incredibly wise. Because when that thing happens to me, the physical sensations followed by the label that I put on it, followed by the story I tell, when that happens to me, I am, and I'm sure it happens to you too, I don't think I am just feeling an emotion that is as transient as the weather. That's not what, this, what I think is going on inside of me. What I think is going on inside of me is that I have now discerned the absolute truth of the universe. <laughs> I have seen the light and I have seen the truth and they are stupid and it is bad and it is never going to get any better. And those emotions and the stories that we have attached to them become a once and forever unchallengeable truth of all time. She did disrespect me. He does hate me. This is a power game. I am stupid. They are stupid. This is never going to change. It's never going to get better. <laughs> but if our contemplatives taught us, instead of labeling and telling a story about those physical sensations, we simply experience them. And when we experience them, we say, oh, you know what? I usually label those sensations that way. I usually call those sensations fear, or I usually call those sensations anger, or I call those sensations bitterness, or I call that shame when I go through it. If we do that, we begin to be the observer self that disidentifies with the experience, and we become observers of the sensations. And when we do that, the funny thing happens. Emotions become the transient realities that they are. They begin to morph and change. They begin to move and shape shift. And they don't lock us into place and keep us where we were. Sometimes the emotion disappears on its own. Other times it turns into another emotion, which if it does, we do the same thing, we observe that emotion. Instead of naming the, the sensations with a label and attaching ourselves to that label, we simply watch the sensations. The contemplative tradition called this practice being the interior observer. It's why we practice Lectio Divina. It's why we practice centering prayer. It's why we meditate. It's why we practice examine of consciousness. It's why we do these things so that we can, without judging or labeling or telling ourselves a story, simply observe the emotions that happen inside of us. 
we don't identify with them, we become seers. Seers see. We become watchers. Watchers watch. We become observers. Observers observe. Now, I've talked to a lot of people in the midst of their despair stories in this last couple of years, and I've told them about this thing, and so I know kind of the response that might be going on in your mind, and it might go something like this. Well, now, just hold on a moment. Isn't that just avoidance? Aren't we just saying some happy words and pretending like these bad things aren't going on? Aren't we just avoiding our emotions? Or aren't we avoiding the struggle? Aren't we avoiding the challenge that is set before us to make right what is so clearly going wrong? Well, that's kind of not what our tradition teaches us. In fact, our tradition teaches us that by doing this inner observer practice, we're actually doing just the opposite is seeing the emotion for what it really is, a transient, momentary experience. And instead, what we're avoiding is buying into and continuing to blindly believe the hope-killing, joy-killing narrative that we concoct to ourselves about those physical sensations. Rather than getting caught up in a fixed, static story around our physical sensations, we allow ourselves latitude to move and adapt and change. We free ourselves from the fixed place where we have to think these thoughts about those kind of people who do that kind of thing. And we allow ourselves to experience what really is. Motions are passing phases. They are not fixed one and true truths. They naturally pass like the clouds, they do not define who we are. So this practice, being the inner observer, allows us to access Advent's essential spiritual truths. If we are going to be agents of change in our world, uh, it's doing that echoey thing again. If we're going to be agents of change in our world, Advent's truths, these four, are essential. Hope is essential. Joy is essential. Interior peace is essential. Interior love is essential. Our world is full of hurt. Our world is full of wounds. Our world is full of blindness and fear and people reacting to their fear. And if we are going to repair that damage, we must bring our best selves to the endeavor. We must bring our best selves to the work that is set before us. If we're going to be the pine nut, we must draw from the deep truths that we carry within us because we carry the Spirit of God within us. And we must tap into the spiritual genetics of the indwelling Spirit of God. And this, our tradition tells us, is how we get there. This is how we do that. So may we do that. Holy Spirit, help us. Help us access these great essential core truths, the truer truths. Amen.